I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It's an iconic scene from the spring of 2003. The statue of Saddam Hussein slowly being pulled down by American soldiers. It bends over at 90 degrees and comes crashing to the ground. The falling statue was a telegenic symbol of breaking with the past, broadcast to the world in real time, the past giving way to a supposedly new and better future. Then, in August 2020, this. The statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Place du Canada was toppled following a march that was calling for the defunding of police. A handful of people climbing the monument, tying Some, ropes like Conservative the MP Andrew Scheer, Morning, everyone. rallied around the statue, while others were clear in their contempt. Moralize people because we glorify every aspect of their lives. I think this current debate about the meaning of history is a debate about the meaning of truth and who has access to truth. This question of who has access to truth has changed over time. It's changed because we have different groups of people who are now claiming access to speaking up. These debates aren't ultimately about how we view the past. They're about how we see ourselves right now, in the present. History is not about articulating the past in some kind of precise way. It's rather taking hold of this connection between memory and history at the moment when there is some kind of a crisis, there is some kind of a danger. When you don't look fairly and squarely and deeply and searchingly at history, you take away a valuable tool for understanding the world that we're living in right now. We're calling this episode, When We Kill History. Well, I definitely see a crisis in historical discourse or a crisis in the way in which we conceive of history and the role of history for our everyday life and for our education, our political agendas, and so forth. My name is Amila Buturovic. I'm Professor of Humanities and Religious Studies at York University in Toronto, and I focus in my work on pre-modern Balkans with the emphasis on cultural history of Islam and interreligious dialogue. Now, history clearly has always been written from many different perspectives, uh, the trouble now is that we have a proliferation of historical writing. There is, a, of course, a new global environment in which we have new technologies and we have new connections in which everybody in some ways can be their own historian. 
We have, you know, DNA um, kits being passed around. We have new digital vocalizations as to what what it means to be um, a, a person in in this political moment, uh, somebody of minorities, and the issues of identity. At the same time, um, of course, as as globalization is bringing people together, there is more and more of a national project. So there is more and more a sense of a threat. I think that very often we fight out the conflicts that we have in the present day by arguing about what did happen or didn't happen in history. And there are a lot of Americans who feel uh, black people are getting the benefit of the doubt, getting all sorts of advantages through affirmative action uh, and other things. Yeah, my name is Adam Hochschild. I am half historian, half journalist. I teach at the Graduate School of Journalism, University of California at Berkeley. And I write books and articles that deal with a variety of issues, mostly to do with human rights and social justice in one way or another. I think there are a lot of Americans who never, ever were able to come to terms with the fact that we had a black president for two terms. Uh, and that's why the myth that Obama was born in Kenya was so widespread. Uh, and now some of the locus for that battle has shifted to arguing about our history. The idea of the history wars has been around for a long time. I think there's a lot to the idea that this is something that's different right now in our contemporary moment, that there is perhaps an intensity or a new level of stridency to how we debate um, what's true or what's fact. My name is Cindy Ewing. I'm an assistant professor of international history at the University of Toronto. The concept of fake news or a fake history is a part of our popular discourse. I think this current debate um, about the meaning of history is a debate about the meaning of truth and who has access to truth. It was the worst atrocity on European soil since the Nazis. 8,000 men and boys separated from their families and in the space of a few days murdered and thrown into mass graves. But genocide denial persists. In our age of freely available alternative facts, many Bosnian Serbs refuse to acknowledge either the scale or the nature of what happened at Srebrenica. I would like to evoke here what, what Walter Benjamin provocatively put, and that is that really history is not about articulating the past in some kind of precise way. It's rather taking hold of this co connection between memory and history at the moment when there is some kind of a crisis, there is some kind of a danger. And I think that the globalization has increased the sense of sort of danger for people who feel that somehow they are not represented in this global scheme in this global arena. So we have more and more of contested histories coming up with all very good reasons, of course, in certain cases, but also the, the flip side of it is that it allows for fake news, for fake historical um, revisionist history that is not grounded in sources, but is grounded in how one wants to be represented in the world. There are those who claim America's true founding was in the year 1619, when African slaves were forced across the Middle Passage to come to the New World. 
They claim that America is rooted in oppression and racism. These are the claims of the 1619 Project. The right has generally taken up the cudgels saying that uh, Americans should feel proud of their past. There's nothing to be ashamed of, or at least very little to be ashamed of. And if there once was, it was something like slavery, which was ended more than a century and a half ago. Uh, time to forget about that. Uh, the left points out all sorts of lingering inequalities that are very much a legacy of that era. And I think all of these things have been exacerbated in the United States by the fact that income inequality and wealth inequality has steepened dramatically in recent years. It's just about the most extreme that it's ever been. This question of who has access to truth has changed over time. It's changed because we have different groups of people who are now claiming uh, access to speaking up. It's also changed because we have groups that are increasingly fearful of a different form of public debate. The History Wars is a reflection of a deeper divide in society that's produced out of both fear of what may come out of recovery of a certain kind of past, but it's also out of fear of what may come in the future as a result of a different historical narrative. There's this tension between pride and shame when we think about history. The omission of inconvenient facts or the spread of disinformation or fake news. These are, I think, reflections of deeper currents in society, of beliefs about what those facts reveal about who we are. And as a historian, I do see an increasing challenge in having simple conversation about history and what constitutes our common past. It started some decades ago with kind of a rejection of, of this kind of objectivist uh, history writing and more and more bringing in sources that were not considered canonical once upon a time, that were put away where, where people who, lots of people who, who actually were making history were not represented in those history writing. But at the same time, we have the, the, at the popular level, this competition to be up at the top, to be up there and seize this kind of history, seize the memory and, and present oneself as the most important. It's, it's at some level, it's, it's a very healthy sort of situation because more people are able to, to um, articulate what they feel has been ignored in history writings, particularly in nationalist histories. But at the same time, we really have a crisis of history because history has suddenly become a, a discipline that is, has been shunned. I mean, every now and then we hear that even some governments uh, um, saying we, history is no longer going to be the obligatory topic in uh, in school, that it is no longer going to be such a... Um, because after all, we can all learn history from Google. We can just sit on and, and find answers to our historical questions on Wikipedia or wherever. But... Um, we we have then the the kind of self confidence to articulate, but there is no basis to articulate the history that is analytically, contextually, thickly done. 
So rather than going back into kind of analytical, thick history writing, it is all about specific events, specific people, uh, specific moments, which provide certain moral guideline in a world in which we are supposedly contaminated by too many different universalist sort of messages of, you know, we, of, of uh, shared ideas as to what the society should be and what we as individuals should, should be. I think that in this contemporary moment, we're at a juncture in which there is a lot of skepticism over expertise and who constitutes an expert and therefore an authority on any topic, especially history. So historians and the profession of history has certainly come under fire in North America, but throughout the world as well, in terms of what kind of bias historians do or don't have when they write their historical narratives. So the question of authority and its related topic of expertise, I think, reflect part of the populist rise of anti-elitism and a resistance to listening to traditional elites or establishment figures. This is something that's very palpable in the United States, but in other countries as well. And I think that's partly tied to the rise of global populism as a reaction to a sense of distrust and skepticism towards elites. That includes the media, it includes academics, and uh, increasingly it's uh, a war over history and the problem of historians. So just to offer an example, how historians engage the public through public history, this can be over the media or through um, different communication forms, podcasts, radio, television, but historians um, also participate in marketplace of ideas by producing works of history that are aimed at the public. And I think there's increasingly uh, less interest in reading those kinds of works because of a fear that those works um, don't tell the whole story. And it's becoming increasingly uh, difficult for many historians to find ways of reaching the public. The Lost Cause is one of the most notoriously effective efforts to rewrite history, and it was done by the losing side. So how did it become so deeply rooted in Southern memory? Blame the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Because I like to write about history, I always look for the continuities rather than the differences. And we went through many earlier rounds of the history wars. In fact, I've just been doing some research on one that broke out about 130 years ago. Now, this was starting in the 1890s and lasting for about 30 years after that. There were a number of organizations centered in the South, in the United States, that became very active in honoring the cause of the Confederacy. You know, the American South, the Confederate States, they lost uh, the Civil War in 1865. The Union Army won victory. And then over the next 50 years or so, the South won the Civil War by uh, suppressing rights for black people, uh, make it impossible for blacks to vote almost anywhere in the South, making sure that they were shunted into very second-rate uh, education and uh, health care and all sorts of other things. And then they went to war over history. And starting in, 18, in the 1890s, 
was when a couple of very active organizations, the United Confederate Veterans and the United Daughters of the Confederacy, started building all those monuments all over the American South, some of which have come to an ignominious end in the last couple of years. But they also saw to it that school history books were rewritten, at least those in the southern states rewritten to say that the American Civil War had not been about slavery, but rather about states' rights, rewritten to honor the great heroic Confederate soldiers and statesmen and so forth, the same people they were putting up monuments to. And I think just as today's history wars are underlain by an economic tension, there was an economic tension at that time, which was the rise of the populist movement, uh, you know, which was based on heavily indebted small farmers who, to the horror of the Southern elite, at times made common cause white farmers and black farmers. Uh, they briefly took over the government of North Carolina, for example, in the 1890s. And I think it's no accident that in the 1890s was when that round of the history wars started, where the Southern elite, who were the people who were represented by these organizations I mentioned, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, United Confederate Veterans, they wanted to idolize the pre-Civil War regime where, you know, the country, this, at least the Southern part of the country was run by plantation owners and their gracious columned plantation houses. The slaves were happily working away in the fields, uh, appreciating how much better their lot was there than it would be in Africa. Small tradesmen and so forth were happy in their places. And it was a very orderly world with an elite on top. And this was the world that they were trying to celebrate at a time when it seemed like it could be menaced by the rise of populism and the rise of the labor movement. The British flag, which has flown over Jamaica for the past three centuries, is about to be replaced by the Jamaica national flag, heralding the birth of the new nation. The knights go out. The role of history was extremely important to being able to unite often very disparate peoples. One of the problems of the post-colonial condition was the creation of a country or the establishment of a state that was often determined by forces and groups outside of that state, people who didn't live or belong to that country. In other words, often from maps drawn by former colonial masters. And so one of the, the major tensions in thinking about independence um, in the post-colonial world or independence in the former colonial world is the result of having a country or a state that doesn't really match the histories of the people who live there. And as a result, the creation of a new history, one that would unite people in the post-independence period, that would make it possible to govern and have a functional society, often one that was in a deeply, a deeply devastated economic state and was on the precipice of civil war, meant that it was really important to come up with a historical narrative that would work and to do it very quickly. And as a result, um, many of our first, uh, first leaders of post-colonial nation states of the post-colonial world, the many, many of whom are revered as the fathers of their countries, 
or participated in the freedom struggles um, of their nations to achieve independence from colonial rule, themselves participated in erasing history, in sanitizing history that would be palatable to now this new national audience. So it's a very exclusionary way of looking at history. And this is where we have to re go back to proper history writing, if you wish, or, or a more or a more inclusive history writing in which there is space for all of us to be both good and bad. There is space for all of us to feel both empowered by moments in our history, but also to feel not so good about it. Um, it, it the world is a big place and, and reducing history to, to a, an event, to a person, to, um, to a moment in time or to a national um, a national agenda to a national narrative at the exclusion of others is not only uh, wrong in terms of uh, how how um, history develops, but also it is it's it's extremely dangerous because it creates xenophobia, it creates forms of oppression, it creates violence, it creates creates intolerance towards the other. And it really does not accommodate then otherness. It does not accommodate diversity. It accommodates only one and the same sort of sense of virtue or, or agenda or, or, or a person to a claim that, uh, that is shared by very few, uh, whether they are a national group or whether they are a political group. Um, it is, it's rather dangerous, and we see that happening a lot, particularly in this uh, sort of time of, of populist um, takeover of historical narratives. On October 22, 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Here is President Kennedy as he delivered that message bearing on recent events in Cuba. I think the crises that we see today have interesting connections to the kind of crisis environment people lived in during the Cold War. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. It was Upon felt the that the stakes were so high that by not following a certain path as a society or by not adopting certain political aims or coming to an agreement about even particular policies or programs, that we end up on a track that can lead to annihilation. And annihilationist thinking today, often in xenophobic terms with regards to immigrant populations that may be eradicating the true nature of a particular country, a lot of that language um, appeared during the Cold War era in terms of the existential crisis of nuclear war. And that sense of crisis permeated society not only in the United States and in the Soviet bloc, but really throughout the world. Indeed, the Cold War was very much a hot war, as we know. There was a lot of violence. There were military conflicts that took place with clear um, pro-West and pro-Soviet sides. 
And in many of those conflicts, at issue, or one of the questions that was at the heart of these conflicts, was not only about which side were people on or which ideology or economic system they ascribed to, but what common past did they share? Were they also part of a wave of liberation against imperialism or against the West? Or rather, were they part of a wave of freedom that would promote democracy and bring liberty to people? These kind of historical narratives, which are deeply held by the United States in Russia today, were also part of the historical narratives of many other countries that were folded into the Cold War. And so the Cold War was very much waged as a war of ideas. Do you mean to tell me that just because I'm a communist, I have to deny the facts of biography and history? You must follow the communist conception of history, Mr. Solomon. We contend that Karl Marx had no basis in Hegel, Democritus, or anybody else. I heard of things like this being put over in communist-dominated countries. Philosophers being compelled to deny the facts they uncovered. Musicians forced to compose the kind of music that ignorant commissars demanded and poets and journalists denied the freedom of expression. Oh, but I never thought I'd find injustice like this in America. Solomon, there's just one issue here. Will you or will you not publicly retract the opinions you expressed in this poem? I'd rather say that the issue is whether I, as an American citizen, as well as a communist, have the right to freedom of expression and opinion. The virtue of history is really not something that necessarily stems from historical enterprise. Rather, it is something that nationalism very much borrowed from, I would say, from religious discourse. Because um, in, in, you know, in most um, religious stories, and they don't even have to be religious stories, simply myths as in stories about ourselves, stories about our communities. Uh, there is a certain sense of salvation. There is a certain sense that something was wrong, something was bad, things were unjust, they were tragic, there was some kind of immorality, there was some kind of de decadence. And then something happened in our past, be it through a charismatic person or a moment or some kind of event, that turned this kind of negative uh, context into something positive, into motivation, into a sense of some, through some kind of a sacrifice, we actually uh, are now in a better place. And nationalist discourse it very much tries to seize uh, this kind of narrative from where, where something negative turned into a positive and this positive impetus, this positive motivation is what, what keeps the the, 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 the national cohesion, what gives us a sense of purpose. National identity is a really complex and slippery concept. One's national identity can be something that's made by the state. We often think about state symbols, parades and flags, or other ways of producing patriotism. But national identity is also deeply personal and informed by personal belief um, one's own ideology, whether we use that term or not. And in moments of political transition, the achievement of independence, especially um, in countries that are former colonies, it, it's a moment that is 
deeply pregnant with meaning, in part because there are so many different voices that are claiming what that national identity is. And so a moment that often is celebrated in textbooks or through uh, national narratives, when we look at the history of moments of founding or moments of political independence, we actually see a great conflict over what that national identity means. Who gets to say what that identity is? And then in practice or in real life, how do people uh, think about their own identification with that country or that community? That varies a lot. And uh, those stories often tell the stories of individuals and family lives. Uh, those can get lost very easily. But in fact, I think if we look at those small stories, it helps to tell us a bigger picture, um, paint a bigger picture of what national identity is or was in a moment of founding. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I think if we look at those small stories, it helps to tell us a bigger picture, um, paint a bigger picture of what national identity is or was in a moment of founding. Cindy Ewing's insight about storytelling and national identities is precisely the impetus behind the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project was something started by the New York Times. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was a writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, had the idea, and it was first in the form of a series of articles. And basically, it is a retelling of American history with slavery as a very central feature, slavery and its ongoing legacy. And it takes the, its title, 1619, uh, from the year that the first slave ship arrived in the, what's now the United States, uh, Jamestown, Virginia. And it's significant because that's the year before the pilgrims arrived in Massachusetts, 1620, uh, which is, you know, an event that is often celebrated as sort of the birthplace of American democracy, even though there were uh, white settlers in Virginia for, for 13 years before then. So this project has sort of retold the story of American history with slavery and slavery's legacy as absolutely central to it. The centrality of slavery in the 1619 Project has met pushback from both historians and laypeople. Some of the arguments contested the facts. Others took issue with its tone. But the loudest denouncement was political and was spearheaded by former President Donald Trump. 
the left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. There is no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. This project rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. He, of course, seized on this as something to uh, object against, and he immediately appointed a 1776 commission, you know, celebrating 1776, the Declaration of Independence, uh, in lieu of celebrating 1619. This was just in the last couple of months of his presidency, so the 1776 commission didn't get very far, and it was immediately dissolved by President Biden when he took over. After Donald Trump left office, the work of the 1776 Commission was taken over by a small conservative Christian school in Michigan called Hillsdale College. Which has published a fascinating document called the Hillsdale 1776 Curriculum. It's being added to all the time. At the time at which I looked at it, and it can be downloaded from their web website, it totaled 3,268 pages. Uh, I'm sure it's longer than that by now. But it's kind of a fascinating picture of how the right wing think American history should be taught. And it sort of retells American history in terms of all of the things that we Americans should be proud of. They use the phrase, for instance, starting from the premise that, quote, America is an exceptionally good country, unquote. And then it goes on to treat the, some of the, the classic documents of American history almost as sacred texts. We continue now with When We Kill History. For example, of our Declaration of Independence from 1776, the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum says, like an organizational mission statement, the Declaration is a guiding star for our political life and a benchmark for measuring our public institutions. Uh, Americans should consider all questions concerning the public sphere in light of the truths asserted in the Declaration. The Declaration of Independence should be both the beginning and end for students' understanding of their country. Now, I think, however commendable the Declaration of Independence might be, it's ridiculous to say that any document that is uh, two and a half centuries old should be considered as a guiding star that shouldn't be questioned. I mean, if there's anything that causes human beings to make progress, I think. It's the fact that we do and should keep questioning the assumptions that we've operated with, with for many years. And the same thing goes for the American Constitution, which, of course, legitimated slavery until it was amended many decades later. The idea of a founding document or the history of a founding moment, a moment of independence being sacred, to me that means that it's fundamentally inviolable, that this is not open to contestation and certainly not open to being rewritten. Rewritten through the inclusion of inconvenient facts, 
or the inclusion of alternative voices or perspectives. I think the preservation of a particular narrative of history, especially in these moments of myth-making, moments of founding, are part of the imperative of state governments, but also all kinds of groups too, whether they're elite groups or uh, various social and political groups that make up society. It's imperative to them to maintain a certain narrative of history. It helps inform who they are, but it also is a way to justify certain political agendas. And so when we look at the history of these founding moments or look at foundational documents, it tells us a lot about what society thought at the time and what society thinks today about what is permissible and not permissible, what's inviolable and not. And so what I'm gesturing at is that the political is also cultural, and these political ideals that are often enshrined in founding documents that indicate the structure of government, that help frame how society will function under a particular government, they're also about the values that that society holds dear and states explicitly um, are values that represent its vision for the future. And so that future is our present today. And so the kinds of political and cultural debates that um, can be so rife with conflict and intense emotion uh, today are informed by these foundational ideals. I think that the rise of, of nationalism, that nationalism was in some ways a replacement for religion. It was meant to be a secular, secular framing of, you know, a sense of belonging, of a sense of community, of legitimizing certain stories as, and, and symbols as, as being something that you belong to, something that, to which you would give your life and take away others if need be. With, of course, with the difference that in modern times we know this is primarily about uh, political agendas. It's not about uh, individual salvation. It's about, you know, the, the state and it's about um, state formation and the way in which the discourse of the state has certain programs uh, and certain, certain agendas that must thrive. It must keep this myth of of um, threat alive, of a myth of difference alive, of because it is usually about us and them. So unlike religions, particularly world religions, that in fact are open to, in terms of their membership, nations tend to be much more closed in. It's a kind of extended family which draws in your emotions. It's a very kind of ascriptive sense of belonging. It's the same bloodline, it's the same um, culture, it's the same food, it's the same language. Um, and and those are the, the all um, now, they're coming back now, we call them very often culture wars, uh, but in fact they really have that you can see the genealogy in, you know, in the way in which national myths are formed and before that in which how religious myths are formed. So I would say that, that you know, religious language has never left us in that regard, just it has been sometimes, um, you know, left a little bit more in the shadows of politics. Pakistan acclaims the transfer of British power as Mr. Jinnah, Governor General of the New Dominion, arrives at the Constituent Assembly in Karachi. Guests of honor in the Muslim capital were Lord and Lady Mountbatten, carrying out one of their last vice-regal duties before the partition of India took effect. 
in my own work, I look at uh, the constitutions of many post-colonial countries, including India and Pakistan. And we can't take for granted just how contested the making of those documents were, because coming to an agreement about how to set down these foundational ideals, the system of government, the permissiveness of the state in relation to the various rights and entitlements given to its citizens, who is and is not a citizen, who receives recognition in society, those all inform how communities relate to one another. And they can also very easily erase entire communities. Um, I study a period of history in which these myth-making moments are happening in rapid succession to one another, and often in the wake of profoundly violent experiences, in the wake of centuries of violence as well. And so the kind of collective memory that's formed at that time deeply informs just what is part of the political or what is possible in society today. As somebody who spends a lot of time writing history, I value facts. Uh, I think facts are terribly important. And of course, when people tell history from different points of view, they make choices, usually not about facts to deny, but what facts to put in or leave out in the telling. Uh, just to take one example, the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum uh, doesn't deny that slavery existed in the United States, nor does it deny that slavery was a, a brutal and cruel institution. It says so directly. But in all of those thousands of pages, it never talks about some of the things that accompanied slavery, such as the sale within the United States of hundreds of thousands of slaves from one, one part of the country to another, from Virginia to the Deep South, which routinely shattered families. It doesn't talk about the widespread rape that was a part of slavery in the United States, as it has been in many other countries as well. You know, in instances of historical erasure or the removal of uh, entire populations from a society in the effort to tell a particular story about our present or about our future, what, what eventually comes out is um, how much that is a deterioration of historical truth. So, um, you know, from my optimistic point of view, I think these kind of debates are constructive because it demonstrates an engagement by society to want to establish or come to an agreement about what the historical past was. I think it's the reluctance to have those conversations or I think when we enter a situation in which societies are passive about history, that then we become vulnerable to these powerful ideas that um, can ultimately un undo the social fabric. And so I think history shows us that the contestation over history itself is what we need to have healthy debate. Now, in our current moment, part of the urgency is just how polarized that is, and, and I would say also undermined by disinformation and by distrust of uh, valid sources. And so the risk in the present moment is that this debate doesn't produce a healthy or productive outcome of reaching a new, more inclusive understanding of what is socially and politically possible. But instead, it encloses us into 
ever-widening, ever-divided camps. Um, and so, you know, I think we're, we're at this moment in which it, it could... Um, it could lead to a kind of fracturing or fragmentation that would be permanent. In history, this has taken the form of things like global conflict, war, um, ethnic cleansing, genocide, um, and and other, you know, we call them crimes against humanity because they undo and they directly um they they directly challenge the integrity of the concept of humanity. So um not not to be not to be extreme about it so you know but i but i think that there's um there's a risk in the present moment of this kind of polarization this kind of distrust over sources and authority that um will be permanent that can't be repaired um through through engaged debate um when truth or when historical facts themselves are the subject of um such great debate and political politically mo motivated um schemes then then i think it, it isn't as easy or possible to reconcile to come to a place of greater reconciliation in society the great um, islamic sociologist of the 14th century ibn khaldun spoke about you know the ups and downs the kind of history and counter history as uh, recorded in in the 18th century in europe that you have these moments in which um somebody is you know at some at some point in time uh, on on the top telling their story and then and then and then somehow there is a cycle of history but these cycles of of history are inevitable and that's this is something that we know by learning history by studying history and how do we try not to have ups and downs, but rather have more um, um, simultaneity, because simultaneity is the inevitable reality of every history. Many histories are happening at any given point in time, just as many people are sharing the same space. Somebody's sacred calendar is uh, just a regular calendar to somebody else. So these kinds of multiplicities exist and they they were supposed to be the sort of the positive development of the democratized historiographical enterprise but alas they have gone hand in hand with with the new with these new biases with these new worries that that have been then given a kind of political uh uh push as as you know into into sort of xenophobic and and violent forms so I would say that it's not that nationalist histories are no longer the really the way in which we we should look at the past. Uh, that we that that these kinds of shifts in the in the politics of of history and the politics of memory also go hand in hand with with um, our enrichment and our understanding that history doesn't have to be this epic kind of enterprise in which everything is is glorious, that actually history is made by ordinary people who really don't have time thinking about how they are making history, but rather they simply live it. So when we actually just include those perspectives, we actually get a much more layered story of the past, uh, a much more, in a way, alive, a living history rather than simply a linear uh, narrative 
which tends to expunge too, ma- too many people and too many voices. I think when you don't look fairly and squarely and deeply and searchingly at history, you take away a valuable tool for understanding the world that we're living in right now. Because you can't understand this world that we're living in with its tremendous inequalities between countries, within countries, without understanding all of the things that led to that. You can't understand the immense differences in wealth in the United States between white and black people, for example, unless you understand what slavery was and its legacy and how that has gotten passed down through the generations. So I think if you turn away from history, you turn away from an enormously valuable tool for understanding the world. I think that killing history is really a very dangerous and extremely troublesome scenario. We already have, of course, ways in which history has been uh, murdered by those who deny the Holocaust, by those who deny, you know, going to the moon, by those who deny uh, that certain things that, you know, have been recorded um, in multiple ways have ever happened. I think what particularly worries me, along with that process, is that we have the rise of artificial intelligence. That 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 in some ways is you know is a, is a wonderful development, of course, in in uh, many um, in many disciplines. But when it comes to history, it it threatens us with taking over um, the way in which we understand history. It sort of synthesizes history by seeking the sources that are available on the net and that are available in this kind of global virtual space. And then it mixes them with the voices that, in fact, have been articulated through um, careful historical research. So we have, we'll have a situation in which AI will write history for us. So, so I think it, history will not be killed, but it might be appropriated in ways that that will truly threaten the way in which we live and we live with others. I go back to the seizing hold of memory. Who is going to be the agency of and the agent of uh, writing about the past? Uh, in what way they are going to write it, to, to be writing about it? What they will consider to be shared memory, collective memory? Uh, what traumas they will want to to emphasize at the expense of expense of others. In other words, what kind of hierarchies they will create. And I, and I, I'm very uh, troubled by the possibility that in fact history, as a topic, as a subject of, uh, you know, in schools, will be uh, ignored, um, and we will raise uh, generations of young people who do not know really how to read the sources. Um, that that come come their way, who will not know how to differentiate between, um, uh, uh, you know, looking at, at history from a kind of systematic way and or looking at the past from from a systematic um, way, but rather just through a kind of emotional way or or through um, a sense of um, you know sentiment with or connection with with something that might be circumstantial or that might be situational. There's a tendency for people to feel that their moment is the most intense and urgent moment. 
And that history is proceeding faster now than it ever has. I think we can think of major transitions in history, the Industrial Revolution, the Great Depression, the Second World War, in which it felt that it, it seemed that the world was speeding up. And I think we're in a moment where people feel things are changing so fast. And the speed at which things are changing for some people um, is alarming and unsettling. But I think from another perspective, um, it's also possible that the changes um, are part of a wider realignment in which there are greater possibilities for cooperation, uh, greater possibilities for working together on common problems than there may have been before. That's maybe a naively optimistic perspective to take. But I think history shows us that in moments of crisis, that there often are moments of collaboration too. And looking at the past was not only a way to glean histories or to gain insight into what kind of policies we should or shouldn't take, but it also was a way for thinking about who are we and what can we do. History plays a role in how people think about their own identity and who they are. It's part of shaping the imagination that we have when we try to confront larger problems. And so, you know, in this, in this more positive vein, I think the relevance of history to today's contemporary and urgent moment is that it provides a way for understanding more deeply, more complexly, who was part of the moment that we live in. You've been listening to When We Kill History. This episode was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Thank you to Adam Hochschild, historian and journalist at the Graduate School of Journalism, University of California at Berkeley. Cindy Ewing, assistant professor of international history at the University of Toronto. And Amila Buturovic, professor of humanities and religious studies at York University. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.